Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I've got a really important topic for you today, and it involves old growth trees and old growth forests and the importance of both. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Chuck Cannon from the Morton Arboretum, and he's recently done a lot of really interesting work looking at just how rare it is to become an old growth tree and why ancient trees are so important. But first, I want to tell you about my friends over at Soltech Solutions. Look, if you're like me, you move around a lot, and not every apartment or house is going to have the best natural lighting for your plants. And that is why I turn to LED lights. And Soltech Solutions offers some of the best I have come across. They take both function and aesthetics into consideration and have produced high-quality, photosynthetic plant lights that give off a warm white glow. These aren't going to blind you or make you sit in harsh lighting while your plants are getting all of the benefit. And best of all, these can grow plants. I've been germinating seeds with mine over the last couple of weeks, and it is fantastic. I am so pleased with these. And because they're LEDs, they last for an incredibly long time. For instance, the Aspect Pendant Light can last up to 15 years. Finally, we can be proud of the lights we're using to grow our plants. They've become a fixture in our home. And they offer a variety of plant lights, from track lights to pendants and even just the bulbs if you've got your own fixture. And best of all, they offer free shipping and a five-year warranty on your purchase. So check out Soltech Solutions today and enter the discount code INDEFENSIVEPLANTS15 at checkout. That's INDEFENSIVEPLANTS, one word, 15 at checkout, and you'll get 15% off your order. All right, that's enough for me. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Chuck Cannon. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Chuck Cannon, it is so great to have you on the podcast. It's been a long time coming, but uh, for those that are not familiar with your work, how about we start off with an introduction? Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, uh, I'm the director for the Center for Tree Science at the Morton Arboretum, uh, and that's west of Chicago, about 30 miles. So we're in the upper Midwest, and uh, I lead a team of multidisciplinary scientists. Um, well, a multidisciplinary team of scientists, you might say it that way. <laughs> and they cover a, a broad range of fields. And we kind of take a perspective of looking at whole tree biology, kind of trying to understand how the tree is coordinating behavior and activity between those different organs, between leaves and roots. And this is our centennial year. And we have plots that were established when uh, Joy Morton established the Arboretum. And these are now mature trees and a nice monoculture. So we can actually monitor what they're doing to the soil and to the environment immediately around them. And so we have instruments on these trees and we're, we're watching the nutrient uh, turnover in them. And so, you know, that's one thing that we do uh, and that's very exciting on the grounds. And then we also collaborate nationally and internationally. Um, so we kind of scale across, you know, from the single tree and try to think about how that becomes a forest and then the benefits of those forests and, so we're really trying to work out the kind of the fundamental knowledge that we need to understand trees and then how to translate that into technical expertise to help trees face the challenges of the Anthropocene. I, <laughs> I talk about the Anthropocene a lot. Quite all right. I, I think, you know, the humans, we have taken over the earth and we're modifying it <laughs> dramatically and it's, and it's accelerating. So <laughs> we, we are our own epic uh, or epoch. That is right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So valid word use there. But 
Yeah, I mean, having talked to many of your colleagues, uh, gotten to see the Morton itself, Great. I mean, it is bar none one of the best Arborita in the world. Uh, everyone in the Chicago area, if you're ever around there, needs to go visit. Um, and, and what really strikes me is, is meeting your team and your colleagues is just how varied the interests are, but it's all surrounding this idea of trees, the environment, and, and what it means for multifaceted purposes. For sure. Yeah. It's so fortunate to be at an institution that's totally focused on trees. It's not just the scientists. I mean, everyone, there's volunteers, the visitors, you know, reception staff, everyone's into trees. So <laughs> it's very different than, you know, I was a professor before at university and you're the one tree person. A lot of times these days you're <laughs> the one plant person. Yeah. So yeah, I know that feeling. Um, it's, it's very nice to be amongst a, a group of people who have a very similar uh, passion, you know, so that, that's very fortunate. And um, like you said, I mean, the, the team works together, too. That's one nice thing, too, that the yeah. Center for Tree Science, we've managed to establish a, a really good team of people who, you know, we work together to create something that's bigger than the sum of the parts. Right. And right. so um, we are not just off on our own little pet projects and things. So that, that's been really good. And to see the progress and advance. This is tree science, too. I mean, it takes decades. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So, right. <laughs> you know, the establishment of the Arboretum took that vision, you know, and they were able to establish a way of managing the collections, a way of doing the research that's maintained this program. And we hope to see it go into another hundred years, you know, so it, nice. it really takes a kind of long view when you study trees, you have to be patient. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hey, congrats on the centennial, but yeah, I, I always joke, like I do feel bad for my wildlife colleagues because their sample sizes are often very s small and they have to chase things around that move and aren't guaranteed to be there. But you know, yeah. plant stuff has its own challenges. And when you work with trees, that, that age component, the time sure. frames you're dealing with are just phenomenal and beyond what we really have the capacity to comprehend sometimes. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I, I can tell you about a little bit about how I got to where I am. Cause you kind of asked me that yeah. as well. And that kind of relates to your point about, you know, zoologists chasing things. And so, <laughs> and I like to tell this story too, because, you know, there's hope for people who aren't into trees or into plants in their mid twenties or even in their thirties, because I had no idea I was even going to be a botanist until I was a mid in my mid twenties, you know? So <laughs> nice. I got into it. I was an anthropology ma major. And so I was very interested in human evolution and hmm. wanted to study primate behavior and was fortunate enough to hook up with a professor who has a research site in Indonesia. And so he brought me over there for a year. Uh, it was actually one of the first cohorts of the RU program. So the research experience for undergraduates at NSF. And nice. they funded that year in Indonesia. So U.S. dollar would go much further in Indonesia back then, you know, so we could stretch it out for a whole year. It's usually a, a pretty short period wow, of time. Yeah. But, um, so going to study the primates, it was very difficult to keep up with them <laughs> and you'd have to get up. So I was studying gibbons and, you know, they would sing in the mornings. So that's how I'd find them. They're, they're um, monogamous pairs that huh. defend territories and the, the male and the female do a duet in the morning. That's how I'd find them. And it was dark still and you're putting on wet clothes and, you know, <laughs> and you'd go follow them all day long and you get like two seconds of data really Dang. so my, my my work was based upon just a few minutes of, of actual observation wow. 
Um, so it's frustrating. And but then part of my responsibilities was looking at the trees too, and I just began to realize that they're very fascinating. And like you said, they don't move. You know, I could go out. <laughs> I could go out at ten o'clock in the morning. Love that. <laughs> yep. And study them <laughs> and hang a hammock between them and like read a book and stuff. You know? <laughs> so they were much more inviting as a research topic, a subject, you know, in a sense. And so, um, and I also realized people didn't really know much about them. You know, this was Bornean rainforest, you know, uh, and so most of the trees aren't even identified to species. They're large groups of yeah. uh, species and a genus, you know, that just spell one, spell two, spell three. No one's ever actually even named them before. And wow. So I kind of realized, yeah, this is a real opportunity to contribute and to have gibbons or primates, you need forest. And so if mm. you're going to save the primates, you got to save the forest. And this is right around the early days of, you know, the Rainforest Action Network and a lot of the kind of the early save the rainforest efforts. And right. I kind of realized, yeah, the trees are where it's at. And and then is the kind of the intellectual challenge too, like... <laughs> You know, you you look at an animal and you kind of look at the eyes and you kind of think you know what it's thinking, you know. But a tree, like, what is what is a tree thinking? You know, <laughs> is right. it, is it thinking? <laughs> <laughs> and so I found it, it's it's a it's a big intellectual challenge. You know, yeah. what is it? What is a tree strategy? What you know? What are they? What are they doing? How do they? You know, I, I do. They do have behavior. We have conversations about you know does the tree have behavior? Is it just responding to the environment? And there's gotta be something going on in there. Oh, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, organisms interact, right? They're, they're living, they're breathing, For they're sure. doing things that mean survival and whether that's conscious as we know it or not, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a scientist or anyone really that doesn't think that the, the part that always gets me is is you mentioned that intellectual challenge of how different these organisms are. I mean, that just the time frames alone, let alone the way they make their living, you know, the hubris of some writers and some even scientists that want to extend metaphors of human behavior and apply them to these organisms that are so about as alien as you could possibly get from anything we understand. It's 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 kind of silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it is. It is. Um I'm not totally against, I mean, if it, if it helps people to sure, sure. relate, you know, right. it, it's fine. But as long as they understand this is not a technical description of even male, female in plants, you know, doesn't really mean the same thing. Yeah. So th it's all kind of analogy. Right, right. Again, <laughs> but, relatability, but also understanding they are very different organisms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. to me is what's exciting. For sure. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, this colony of of buds basically i mean the, the tree is not really an individual in the way that we think it's very decentralized and the branches are competing with one another and you know in older individuals like you know the branches have been separate from the roots for hundreds of years and you know those tissue are still expanding and growing and renewing themselves every year and yeah it's just amazing what they can do and so yeah that, i mean what we're talking about is kind of the age of trees and things and you know it, it had fascinated me and that was kind of one thing you you would see these trees in the forest sometimes that were just awe-inspiring you just you you really just felt like you were in the presence of something incredible and um that kind of i had a curiosity of, about that you know like these old trees and and just the very limited 
perspective that we have on them, you know? So right. at that research site in Borneo, um, we would tag trees as they flowered and fruited. So part of it, you know, trying to understand primate behavior, you need to know what fruit are available mm. so you can understand, you know, what the primates, how are they, how are they making decisions? You know, they, so the, this tree over here has now got ripe fruit on it. So they're going over there and, and so forth. So you needed to know where those trees were fruiting and flowering and things. And there was a trail that was pretty close to the camp. And, you know, I walked by it a hundred times and, but there was this enormous tree there. It's in Anisop Anisoptera is the genus. It's in the Diptocarpaceae. Oh, okay. So um, they're big trees and this is not a very diverse genus. And so it wasn't really on my radar so much. I hadn't been, really noticed it, but it flowered. And this was like 15 years into the history of the research site, you know, mm -hmm. and it had never been tagged. It had never flowered before. And Whoa. so I was kind of looking at this thing and it, it flowered. And then suddenly, you know, because it flowered, it was kind of synchronized with the other individuals in the population. And I could then find those other individuals like, oh, here's another one. And here's another one. You started to notice them. They all flowered and then they dropped the flowers and there was no fruit. It's like, okay, mm. they aborted that time. And, you know, it waited 15 years, <laughs> tried to flower, decided, nah, not this time. Eh. I want to wait another 20 years. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe something will be different. Yeah. So wow. it's just like, this thing is really living on a different time scale and, and even long-term ecological projects, you know, or yeah. 20, 30, 50, 100 years, you know, what's that in tree time? I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty small window into their world, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think about this when you think about family members, if you're lucky enough to have a loved one or a relative live to the ripe old age of 100, you think to yeah. yourself, oh my God, like, what have you seen? What kind of changes have you experienced? Yeah. And then you think of a white oak growing in the forest nearby. If you're lucky to have older white oak, you can multiply that by three and and think about all of the things that could have happened there. And then you think about all of the possibilities in the tree world, which extend millennia sometimes. And just, yeah. it's incomprehensible to think of existence for a living organism spanning that kind of time. And for trees, it's often really the rule rather than the exception. Right, right. For sure. I mean, they are potentially immortal. I mean, in a sense, I mean, they don't senesce like you were talking about, you know, you can predict what a person is going to be doing. If you tell me a person's age, yeah. it's very likely I could tell you, you know, oh, they're in school or they probably have kids or they're a grandparent or, right. or they're, you know, you could kind of understand their health to a certain yeah. extent. But a tree is like, there's no correlation between size. And, there is some correlation, sure, but there's not a, a strict correlation between size and age. <laughs> and so a, a pretty small tree can be quite old uh, if it's growing in kind of very, you know, closed forests. And it's some of those understory trees can be 50, 60 years old. They're just standing there in the shade, you know, waiting for somebody else next to them to fall down right. so that they get sun and they can grow up into the canopy. And so there's really no correlation. I mean, like at the Arboretum, uh, we were kind of discussing where some of the oldest trees and uh Christy Rollinson, our forestry college, has cored some of them. And the oldest tree dates back to 1772, which wow. is you know, four years older than the Declaration of Independence. And <laughs> that's in our, you know, 
regenerating forests in in the suburbs of Chicago. Right. Uh, but it's not even a, it's not even a, that impressive a tree. You know, it, it's <laughs> it's like not even it's barely under three foot in diameter. Wow. It's just kind of in this area, and you know, it, it's a solid, attractive tree, but it's not like you don't drop your jaw when you see yeah, it. And, yeah. So, you know, there's not this strict correlation between age and size. And um, and so they're very plastic. You know, they can really respond to the, the conditions where they're growing. And, you know, you grow the same, if you could split the seed and grow it in a, a sunny spot versus in a closed forest, those trees would look very different in 50 years, you know? Right. Um, I mean, what gets me is... I remember a, a specific moment in, I think I was in an undergrad, regardless, I was in college and, you know, you're talking about reproduction and how much it takes to replace an organism and what a stable population rate, that kind of thing is, how populations grow or decline over time. And when my professor turned and said like, okay, think about this now in the context of plants and you have an organism that can like your tree wait 15, 20 years reproduce. Eh, not today. Go back at it again in another 20 years. I mean, basically getting old enough to drink in our country <laughs> again <Right. laughs> before it even tries to have babies. And they said all it needs in that lifetime, if it's measured by centuries is one seed to make it. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that in and of itself just goes to show you this law of large numbers game that trees are really playing where, okay, these reproductive events may be rare, but over the span of 500 years, if two make it, that's double oh, yeah. what was there before for that individual. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that reproductive capacity is, is amazing. I mean, if you think about, you know, when an oak tree really produces a lot of acorns, it can just carpet the ground below it. <laughs> yeah. Or, there's a hundred thousand of seeds there maybe. And, and so over, you know, centuries, you can imagine that that tree has produced millions of seed and just the, one of them needs to survive, like you said. And um, that provides incredible flexibility in a way to the whole population. I mean, you can imagine. So in the, in the study that uh, we're talking about, uh, we modeled, Kind of stochastic death so we're looking at only mature trees so you know like that seedling stage of course like 99.999 percent die you know <laughs> the vast majority of those acorns are are not going to survive even to a sapling stage you know right. but the ones that make it to a mature tree size once they get to that size and they're established there's no senescence right there's no reason that tree should die of old age if it just, you know, the conditions were perfect, it could just kind of keep going on. And that's another thing. I mean, talking about age not being correlated to size is the slower growing ones, like the more conservative ones sure. seem to be the older ones. You know, they don't overrun their limits. So if right. you're a really right. fast growing individual, you get up there, you're sticking out in the wind more and you're, you know, you're kind of more exposed and you, you're you're more likely to overrun your thresholds or your physiological capacity. Right. So yeah. um, the oldest trees are oftentimes some of the slowest growing trees in the population of a species, hmm. for example. And so um, you can and imagine, you know, once those trees establish, if there's really no reason for them to die, it could just be a random process, right? It's just an accumulation of injury or, right. 
disease damage or something pests um and so you know in i had seen this actually in so i've done simulation work before and kind of trying to model different evolutionary processes and stuff and i'd seen this in the data kind of these really old individuals would kind of emerge out of the process you know so and it would vary according to the mortality rate that you applied and it kind of it kind of stuck with me and i've kind of this is a you know, I would tell people to, if there's something about a theory or a piece of data that kind of bugs you and it kind of just sticks <laughs> with you and you say, this isn't quite, this isn't the whole story. There's something else here. What's kind going of, on? You know, yeah, I saw this like 15 years ago and like it's just kind of <laughs> stayed in the back of my head. So it's just kind of something that was in plain sight because we didn't really, this isn't like a advance in modeling or something. You know, these mm. kinds of models exist and people have been modeling forests for decades and just kind of, we made this observation, kind of put it in the context of what it means for evolution and for the forest. Right. And um, what happens is the, these old trees are just kind of lottery winners, like life history lottery winners, right? Hmm. I mean, so there's not, there is, the, you don't have to have a reason. You don't have to have an explanation other than just the math, right? The, just the probability. <laughs> right for this thing to live six, 700 years. And when we correlated it to, you know, observed empirical mortality rates in forests around the world in old growth forests, which kind of range between one and three, kind of more between one and two, one and a half percent is, is a pretty representative mortality rate for trees in, in old growth forests. Hmm. And so if you, if you do that, you begin to see these six, 7,000 year old tree trees emerge and they're very rare i mean so it's like this long tail right so a distribution this tail just kind of gets longer and longer um and so you have these exceptional individuals that are two three ten times older than the average and so they're very unusual um and there's just very few of them and they're not necessarily the most spectacular looking tree as well you know <laughs> sure so they're actually really hard to study. I mean, so there's a reason we we haven't really studied ancient trees. No, there are, there are people out there trying to save them and propagate them, but it's really hard to study ancient trees, you know. Um, but it's that kind of process that they kind of emerge from old growth forests. And that that's one thing that kind of came home to me. I, because I, you know, I was aware of old growth forests and definitely have love it and work have worked in it before yeah but it wasn't really like this this is really really important i mean it, of course we do want to protect it but the reason the results from this research kind of really drove home to me like they really are irreplaceable they're they're really exceptional i mean it's just i think that's one of the reasons we we do connect with them because we recognize this is just a this is a an amazing unusual organism <laughs> yeah. that i'm i'm standing next to you know um, sure. um so in kind of thinking about how that affects the whole population you know you were talking about how the tree can just wait 20 years to try to flower again and these trees can actually bridge extreme environmental factors of like on the scales of hundreds of years right so if this tree established during a drought period 400 years ago and that drought period 
that similar kind of a severe drought appears again now, 400 years later, suddenly it might be the ideal conditions for this tree. I mean, wow. it's been standing there for 400 years and now, hey, this is the way I like it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's wild to think about. And I'm appreciating that more and more when I get around horticulturists that spend, you know, their entire professional life growing plants and trying to get plants ready to go out to be displayed or have these wonderful specimens or even just plant breeders in general. Fascinating folk. But they right. talk about these conditions that they're growing these plants in and how that sets the stage for success. And if you often pamper a plant and then throw it out into the elements, mm. all of a sudden it's going, what is this? This isn't a perfect climate controlled <laughs> greenhouse. And I, you know, your research and then you combine that with interest and in, in information you're getting from others just really encapsulates this idea of yeah, what was it experiencing when that seed first put down its first radical, right? And and how right. much does that affect the dynamics of reproduction across the population, let alone the entire range of the species? Right. Yeah, no, they could definitely contribute a unique genetic diversity, right? I mean, it, it's like species extinction. When we lose these old trees or old growth forests, It's we're losing an, an aspect, a temporal dimension of diversity, right? Yeah. We're losing something that we can't re replace. We can't replant these forests. They're not going to regrow without all that time passing. Right. You know? So it's it's like a living genetic bank almost. And when you think about what you said about the lottery of getting to that point, you know, if most right. of its neighbors, if not all of its neighbors have died and you're seeing fourth, fifth generation from different seeds, different sources, different events, that plant is holding on. That one ancient tree is holding right. on to genes that are probably mixed matched or even gone from that even if the rest of the forest is that species right 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 exactly and you can imagine too like i, I was saying you know if there was a, a severe drought 400 years ago and there's another one now the ways in which that tree adapted to the drought 400 years ago might be slightly different it's a different combination right there's mm. different ways you could survive a drought you could you know regulate your opening of your stomata a little bit differently or regulate root growth a little bit differently. Hmm. So that 400 year old tree might've solved the challenge of drought differently than the trees are currently doing it, you know, so it could, could contribute this whole unique set of traits that yeah. uh, aren't present in the current population, particularly if, if it had been wet, you know, say it has been wet for a while, all of those, you know, hundred year old trees are, adapted to wet conditions. And so now it's a drought. It's like, they're all screaming. And, uh -oh. But this one 400 year old tree is like, Hey, this is just the way I like it. And so it's able to reproduce and, and contribute disproportionately to the regeneration of that forest. And so, you know, you can definitely think about them kind of hitting these, these waves of environmental change uh, and contributing, you know, when the conditions are right for them. Yeah. Wow. I, it makes me think of some of the forestry work I've read about where they talk about leaving legacy trees, so to speak, these yeah. larger trees that they'll just leave behind, even in a mostly clear cut, because the importance of that regeneration, local propagule sources from not that far away, especially for heavy seeded things. And I mean, you could see this dynamic playing out in a less destructive degree in a forest based on what you just outlined there. For sure. I think it's really important to save those old trees, even if it's a single old tree. I mean, I, I, <laughs> this research has really convinced me of that fact that even a tiny little tat patch of old forest is, is yeah. very, very important to protect. Definitely. And 
when we say old growth, I think people get pictures in their mind. Myself, I always default to like a Miyazaki film, this beautiful ancient, you know, redwood esque type forest. But, you know, I have to stop and correct myself. Some of the most ancient forests I've seen outside of the redwoods were these stunted, scraggly looking forests <laughs> sitting on top of little rock outcrops. You know, it's there's yeah. these moments, right? But yeah. when we think of what old growth means in a scientific context, I mean, is there a strict definition of like how we start looking at a forest is, okay, this is old growth. This is not old growth. I mean, where do we start drawing lines in the sand? Right. That was another result from the work uh, that was very interesting. Um, there's one kind of common sense point, right? The forest to be old growth forest, you would think the forest needs to be older than the oldest tree. Right. Hmm. So if you've got a tree there that's 600 years old, that forest has to, you know, a 300 year old forest is not old growth forest when you have the capacity to have a 600 year old tree. Right, right. Um, and you can see, I mean, you know, we see around here after settlement and, and a lot of stuff then went fallow, you know, there's kind of an even age stand of bur oaks around here and, and the forest in general kind of regenerated relatively the same time. And so you see this even age stand of, of trees and those are slowly dying. And in our results, we kind of saw this, you know, tapering off of that cohort that established, you know, upon clear cutting or something. And you get down to that final individual who's the oldest individual in the forest. And then the forest becomes older than that oldest individual. Mm. And it's, that's, that could be a technical definition of old growth forest then, you know, um, and that would depend on the mortality rate. And of course, different species have different mortality rates. Sure. And different biomes have different mortality rates. Yeah. So, it, but then you can imagine too, I mean, certainly the forest is accumulating properties beyond even that the age of the oldest tree. I mean, that's just the oldest individual. Then you kind of layer on these other things. And so I think for all of the true properties of an old growth forest, it probably takes, you know, thousands of years, right, I would think, right. even, you know, just for the true biodiversity to emerge. Yeah. And that's an important thing to kind of always reiterate is I like tree planting campaigns if they're done right with the right species yes. in the right place. I love yeah. the idea of restoring the landscape to something functioning as an ecosystem. But right. at the same time, it also has to be done with protection of what's already there because we're not in multiple lifetimes going to replace what an old growth forest is. And that's yes. even what we understand, Yeah. let alone all of the <laughs> unseen sure. unknowns sure. in these ecosystems that are just begging for someone to take a closer look. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've learned so much in the past few years about, you know, the underground networks and how all the trees are connected through the roots and the mycorrhizae and everything. And, and you can imagine how that is very complex and very highly developed in an old growth forest versus something that's been planted 20 years ago, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I th always think about, you know, as an understory person, I think about like the orchids and the, the micro heterotrophs, the ones that need mm. that. And then thinking oh, about, sure. You know, you need that dead wood. You need that recycling of the trees to go into the soil and the time it takes to break that down to even get the substrate, the context that these things need. And then, yeah, again, we should be restoring it. But to think that you could just go into a 15, 20 year old forest plot 
that was replanted and be like, okay, we're back to where we were is just, right. Right. yeah, let's do it. But also let's protect what's there. For sure. Yeah. No, I'm completely for tree planting. It's a very important tool. We have to restore forests and to capture carbon and improve environments, but we definitely should protect and preserve our old growth forests as much as we can because they are just irreplaceable. I mean, once yeah. they're gone, they're gone. And so when you're doing these simulations, you mentioned this lottery type uh, selection for ancient trees to get to where they are. I mean, what kind of percentages are we looking at and, and what kind of time frames did your model consider to even start looking at? You know, I would imagine that if it's a small time frame, mortality is just high enough, you get nothing, right? No trees live to be ancient. Where do you start to see this play out time frames, time spans, that sort of thing to get these lottery events happening? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because it is closely related to the empirical mortality rates that we observe. And so we generally see, you know, like really low rates of mortality or like 1%, maybe a little bit below 1%. And that's where we really begin to see a big response in these the age of the ancient trees. I mean, they can really get above a thousand years quite easily. Wow. But when you get to 3%, you know, you're talking six, 500, 600 years, and then you go higher. And that's, that's what's troubling as well is we're seeing mortality rates in forests around the world increasing. Ooh. And so just from the math, we can understand that if mortality gets up to 4%, these ancient trees are never going to appear again. I mean, they, they, those lottery events don't occur anymore. You don't have thousand year old individuals that are even possible in forests where the mortality rate is 4%. So wow. we were running these models for, uh, I think I ran it for 15,000 years of, you know, simulated. Oh, that's it. And <laughs> different population sizes from like really small population sizes of a hundred individuals up to half a million. Wow. Um, and it, it's a point to take away from this. I mean, I love field work too. I, I, I spend too much time on my, my computer. I wish I was out in the field more often, but sometimes these computer models are the only way to study this i mean so like we were talking about you get a even the longest ecological study of forests it's a tiny snapshot in the overall dynamics and so if we really want to try to understand um what happens over thousands of years and then study the variability around those processes you know that you know how much how sensitive is this to a change in mortality rate and so these computer modeling studies are critical for us to understand um sometimes it's disappointing i've talked to people about this and they're always kind of like what you didn't measure anything that you got in the forest <laughs> so yeah yeah it's easy to criticize when you're not staring down the barrel of logistical challenges like that but right i mean the, the strength in doing it this way is a you can uh you know you're not spending 100 years trying to collect data that's like you said a snapshot in the lifetime of a forest but you know, when you think about tens of thousands of years, you really start getting into just rules of numbers, right? It's stochasticity yeah. plays into effect and like it's it just becomes math at that point. And that's important to understand. But then the yeah. other side of it is, you, can, you know, if you told me on face value a three to four percent mortality rate, I'm like, well, we're not doing so bad. That's uh, right. That's that's pretty good. But right. in this context, that's terrifying. 
Um, yeah. And then you place all of the stresses that we directly put onto ecosystems and then all of the indirect effects of our behaviors. Whew. Yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of scary in some <laughs> ways. And even thinking about interpreting our results going forward, you know, so there are now lots of plots around the world where there are carefully monitoring the forest and, and measuring turnover and all that kind of things. But, you know, that, that forest is now in the Anthropocene. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not in the past. Those the processes that created that forest are not necessarily dominant anymore. <laughs> yeah. So as we study them going forward, we have a hard time interpreting them to in the past. And so that's another reason I would say these computer models are really important. Right. And even the best dendrochronological work, the best fossil work, uh, you know, soil core sediment stuff. I mean, these are all great things to inform. But again, snapshots, geographically yeah. related, uh, you know, very contingent on which species are going to even be putting out enough resources, I guess, to put it to even have right. the leftovers to study. I mean, right. You can slice this any way you can, and you have to come back to, we have to be able to do some form of estimation. And again, if you start thinking about like just the laws of physics in large numbers, this is a really yeah. good way to start thinking about forest dynamics. Right, right. And it's, it's akin to the, you know, the neutral theory of biodiversity too. You know, Steve Hubble's very, I was controversial. I didn't really think it was that controversial. <laughs> I, I didn't really feel like he was saying things are neutral, but it's just, it's more that, you know, you can win the battle, but you can't win the war. You know, it's right. like you can, it's always a shifting battlefield. Right. And um, so that it, like you say, it, once you kind of integrate all of that over tens of thousands of years in a big area, it looks like a neutral process. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah. Hubble suffers from the same thing. Like the wood wide web does. A lot of people got a hold of it and ran with it. Yeah. And I think in theory <laughs> it stands. And and especially when you start looking at large time scales, like you said, battles versus war at this point. And you know, there's controversy in every aspect of science and people yeah. need to understand regression to the mean is a real thing, but <laughs> At the end of the day, yeah, you're dealing with things that are really largely out of the control of any ecosystem, right? You're dealing with storms. You're dealing with plate movements mm. sometimes. I mean, there's there's just events. Shit happens, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much what it says, right? I mean, it just, like I said, it, you, you win the battle, but then a century from now, you lose the battle again. And it, it's just <laughs> a shifting battlefield all the time. Yeah. Um, and again, you think about what a tree is trying to do. It's growing. It's trying to get into the canopy to access the resources it needs to survive and then live long enough for one or a couple seeds to make it. And I'm sure that over those long time spans, especially for a species that lives, say, a thousand years, if they're reproducing every 20 years, a few could fail and still be a largely successful species. And so that comes back to a question I had is, you know, how much would species identity and sort of forest stand dynamics play into this? Or is it the modeling purely looking at just dynamics of longevity, uh, kind of independent of species ID? Because again, over long spans of time, what the heck is a species, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, this model is just about longevity. And I mean, we want to elaborate it more. I mean, there's a, lo sure. a lot of things I think we can do with it uh, going forward. Um, but it is just 
it doesn't really matter what species. We're just kind of thinking about, you know, what does the mortality rate tell you about the expected age of these trees and what <clears throat> age can they achieve in the end? Um, so, you know, the math is kind of what the expectations would be if there were no right. biological interactions, right? And so we can begin to then interpret how does biology, how does reality deviate from those models? Hmm. And then we can begin to understand, well, okay, none of these trees are really reaching that age, even though we would expect them to be. But that's one thing I would actually point out too. I mean, there is some evidence supporting this because people have aged trees in old growth forests around the world. And yeah they have found corresponding ages. So, you know, they age them in different ways. And so like in tropical rainforest where you don't have the seasonal ring uh, uh, pattern in the, in the tree. So it's much more difficult to age them. And they use kind of carbon dating uh, hmm. techniques sometimes. And they, they use kind of modeling effects of measuring that mortality. They, so they've actually measured some trees, uh, that are six and 700 years old and a thousand years old. And so they find these individuals and it actually is very close to the results that we have in our model. So wow. there, there's a very close correspondence between the evidence that is seen in forests and what comes out of these models. And so that's, that's, that's kind of amazing to me. That's, that kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to feel amazing as someone working on this, but I always think of uh, shout out to professor James O'Dwyer who taught me modeling and taught me that, those sanity checks are vital to understanding how good yeah. your model is doing. <laughs> but it, kind of going back to what you had said earlier is that this isn't something de novo you came up with and, and no. it's this new form of math we're doing. Like These are based on principles that have served a lot of different purposes very accurately, whether that's scientific, whether that's resource extraction, these sorts of things are all based on things that, yeah, largely stand up when you go out looking for the, the quantifiable ways of, of sort of uh, uh, falsifying it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, this isn't anything new really. I mean, we just took the core of a random forest model or something and just let it run out. I think people hadn't really, you know, silviculture, you know, they're not thinking about trees going to 600 <laughs> years. They're like, right. I'm going to cut this thing down in 50 years. What are you talking right. about? <laughs> so they don't really let it run that far. And I think people weren't really following the demographics out. And Again, they're just extremely rare. I mean, yeah. you, they're less than 1% of the population in, off, in those really old individuals. I mean, they can, we, you would see individuals in these models that would be 40 and 50 years older than the next oldest individual, wow. you know, and it was like one tree. And so this one tree was just kind of hanging out doing, you know, it was really lucky, you know, um, <laughs> And that's possible, you know, in, in, with the way that trees grow, I mean, they yeah. could be immortal in a sense, if you hmm. put them in the perfect circumstance. So, um, I'd love to explore or see exploration of that data of like, even just the non-extreme events, like what you just said there is fascinating to me is what is yeah. sort of like the distribution of ages and okay, this one's this age, but the next closest one to it is 50 or a hundred years younger, you know, yeah. and, and what dynamics can lend to that? What numbers and timeframes give you these sorts of dynamics? And yeah, I mean, this is the beauty of applying tools in different ways. If it applies to silvicultural dynamics for, you know, 30, 40 years, 
let's yeah. see what we can do if someone just leaves this on <laughs> overnight <laughs> yeah, kind of right. thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> what happens? No one really did it. Or if they did, they didn't write it down. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the model conditions aren't extreme. I mean, like I said, it's 15,000 years in the model, half a million trees. I mean, that's that's not even a big forest, really. I mean, half a million trees. <laughs> right. So you can imagine in the Amazon, you know, where you, you could have trees that could potentially live, you know, just what's the luckiest tree in the Amazon? You know, how old is the luckiest tree <laughs> right, in the Amazon? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it could be truly ancient. <laughs> it's still wild for me to think that even in a suburb of Chicago, where you all are at, that you can get trees that were born in the 1700s. I mean, it's yeah. there. It may not right. be a stand of forest, but you know, you can still, especially east of the Mississippi, find trees that are right. older than our country. Right. No, that's definitely true. I mean, you know, there a system of forest preserves around here as well. And there are little patches of forest that has never been converted. And there could be, you know, 300 year old tree hanging out in there somewhere. And it's just, it is truly remarkable um, that just saving even these small patches of trees, just unconverted forest, you know, it doesn't have to be strictly defined old growth forest, just right. unconverted forest. Let's save it. You know, why, why not save it? Yeah. <laughs> because it, it does contain in, in irreplaceable value. I mean, shout out to Bell Bull Prairie, right? <laughs> if we're talking yeah, Chicago area, yeah. but you think about this and this is a big sort of shift in my head is we need to be preserving these large tracts of land, but it's largely come at the expense of these tinier patches where there could be special things. But one of the big things that really struck me about your work is just the emphasis of the individual here. And I always mm. think of like, okay, you may not have a ton of room, but if you plant a white oak for the next 40 years, there's going to be over 500 species of insects alone that can utilize that yeah. thing. And so that's a real big shout out to these individuals, or even like you said, small patches. That, that to me was a big take a home, uh, a big takeaway of this work was just, hey, this is important. And it doesn't really matter yeah. what scale we're talking about here. Preservation yeah. should be kind of top of the list here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like those that old individual in that forest i mean it does build up relationships with all those other organisms it's interacting with right and i would think that it could retain you know even if you get to a pretty small patch of forest it will retain those relationships up until the end you know <laughs> so definitely keeping them and, and protecting them is very valuable yeah, I mean, I'm encouraged by all the work that's coming out of urban centers of just the amount of yeah. surprising biodiversity yeah. that's there. And these going back to what got you started down the tree route is all organisms that we care about that are, you know, what the public would consider more charismatic than a plant rely yeah. on those plants. And if we're doing good by plants, we're doing a lot better by everything else that utilizes them. It may not be the richness that you'd find in an isolated spot somewhere in I don't know, the boundary waters, but an urban tree also has a role to play in ecology. Yeah, yeah, it can for sure. And uh, the the generation time too is another thing. You know, we always think about generation time and how populations respond. And kind of unfortunately, I think most evolutionary biologists were zoologists. <laughs> they, they've dominated the <laughs> yep, field in yep, the past, yep. you know. It happens. So we need we need more botanists that are evolutionary biologists and kind of think about the way plants yeah. have adapted. They're just they're doing things just so different. 
it's yeah, so fun yeah. to think like about. Generation time, you know, is we always just kind of assume, oh, when it begins to reproduce, that's the generation time. And yeah. animals have kind of a narrow window. They can, you know, produce babies. But when we think about trees and these really ancient trees, um, you know, that there can be both gener short generation times and this extremely long generation time in the same forest, you know, so you can have an extremely wide variation in generation time. And that tree can be hopping those 400 year events, you know, wow. that it's, that it's really able to be successful and, and really contribute to the population during those times. And so it really kind of mixes up yeah. the calculations that you do, you know, so all these like phylogenetic reconstructions, I, I did a lot of work on the stone oaks. So I did my PhD research on lithocarpus, which is a nice. genus in the Phagaceae. And it's, there used to be one in California until my work with colleagues demonstrated that it's actually not tan oak, you know, lithocarpus, what densiflorus used to be in that genus. Now what it's have you done? <laughs> yeah. Convergent evolution. They just, they just look alike. Oh, they don't shucks. actually, they're not related at all. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's, that's cool too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely cool. That's, that's very, it was a very cool finding. Um, but, you know, we were looking at the biogeography of these, these stone oaks or lithocarpus in Southeast Asia. And I don't know, I just, the patterns just didn't make sense to me, but I was trying to apply the models to analyze the data. It just, the numbers I was getting just didn't make any sense. And just, it really made me think this is kind of one of the first inklings I had. There's something weird going on here with generation time and longevity and trees. And there, there's more to this story than, than hmm. what, you know, just applying 20 year generation time. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense for a tree. Right. Right. No. Yeah. And, and, you know, you said it yourself, the Anthropocene, we're in it, we're dominating the landscape and these unfortunate extreme events, whether that's drought, storms, fires, those sorts of things are becoming more frequent and more intense. And right. boy, does it sound like we need these ancient trees more than ever. <laughs> right, yeah. And that's one next step in the work is we're thinking about how these ancient trees <clears throat> contribute to the population given different scenarios for the future. You know, So if you think about if it's really directional, <clears throat> And things are getting wetter and wetter and wetter in a location. Um, it's it's actually kind of interesting. Some of those ancient trees might not be advantageous. So if you can imagine, if you've got this whole range of of ancient trees, you know some of them are adapted to ancient wet events, and some of them might be adapted to ancient drought events. Hmm. Those trees that are adapted to the or established during the a drought event, they might actually have a set of disadvantageous genes right hmm. and so there could be a portion of those ancient trees that are actually you don't want them but then there's another portion that you do wow <laughs> so it could be kind of complicated and how would you really be able to determine this but i think the more likely scenario is kind of increasing amplitude right there it will be directional in some areas i mean particularly high latitudes it's going to get warmer and warmer yeah but in general we're kind of seeing increasing amplitude of environmental extremes right and so that's a situation where these ancient trees and we're just getting into this and seeing some preliminary results but in those situations these ancient trees are really really important uh, in contributing to the to the overall adaptability of the population wow yeah exciting and timely work and so with that in mind if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of this 
or find out more about the work you and your colleagues are doing at the Morton Arboretum, where do you recommend they go looking? Yeah, certainly the Morton Arboretum webpage. Uh, you know, you can find us, uh, the Center for Tree Science. Um, there's a ton of information there about projects going on. Um, my Google Scholar page, I don't know. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that if you want to look at my publications, I've published across a wide range of projects uh, or topics. And um, yeah, uh, but other than that, that, that's a pretty good source. I mean, the Morton Arboretum webpage is rebranded. It's it's a nice new look. It's, it, so yeah, go, go check it out. Very exciting. Well, <laughs> Dr. Cannon, this has been mind blowing. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for putting in the effort to understand this and, and make it applicable and, and really, you know, making sure the science supports the conservation of not only these species, but the habitats and everything that relies on them. I really appreciate taking the time to tell us about it. Yeah, sure. It's good conversation. Enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about the work. I think it's important. And I think, yeah, it, it's wonderful to see the the response to it. It seems to have resonated. I've published yeah other work before and you know there's <laughs> crickets <laughs> but you know this one really did seem to catch people's uh eye and, and imagination especially in europe it's very interesting hmm. more interesting i don't know why hey <laughs> it's a good thing they are uh i think a lot of good old tree work is coming out of europe but For hey sure. i mean you know you do great work but it's it's also a lottery of who picks it up and who runs with it so that's true too. That's true. <laughs> but uh, again i appreciate you taking the time for, to talk to us about it and uh give us deeper insights into it yeah i've been a listener for a long time i really appreciate what you do matt i appreciate it's, that demonstrates a lot of passion and commitment to it it really you're doing a good job thank you very much it means a lot great Cheers. thanks all right amazing stuff very important work very important implications and applications but also a big cry to preserve old growth trees, old growth forests, and old growth ecosystems in general. That's a point I want to make that it's not just old growth forests. We're talking old growth grasslands, old growth steppes. All of these ancient habitats are doing similar things, and there's no telling what's going on just underneath the surface. We just need to understand them better. But we do know, we can say, we need to protect them at all costs and, in the process, try to restore some of what's been lost. I thank Dr. Cannon for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And of course, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. While you're over there, consider supporting the show through Patreon, picking up a copy of my book, grabbing some Indefensive Plants merch or stickers, or at the very least, hitting that subscribe button. Of course, you can also go check out our sponsor today, Soltech Solutions. Enter Indefensive Plants 15 at checkout and you will get 15% off your order. But that is it. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.